Where do you start when you've never created a video ad before or scaled your existing video production? You start with QuickFrame by Mountain. Their platform takes the efficiency and diversity of massive creator marketplaces and redefines it through a highly curated network of video creators with the expertise you need to bring your ad campaigns to life. From onboarding and production to final delivery, QuickFrame's dedicated customer success team will be there every step of the way, keeping your project on track and on budget. What CMO doesn't love to hear that? Visit QuickFrame.com and get started today. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is an old and dear friend, Stephanie Dobbs-Brown. Stephanie is the Chief Marketing Officer of the Intercontinental Exchange, the parent company of the New York Stock Exchange, uh, known as ICE. Is that correct, Stephanie? Did I get that, that right? Correct. You got that right. Thank you. You're welcome. And we have been friends for a long, long time. Uh, we did a very memorable evening together, which I'm sure we'll touch on with Lewis Black and Dave Grohl during your tenure with Dow Jones a number of years ago. It was a great, great night. Didn't Dave Grohl, he lived up to his reputation as the nicest guy in rock and roll. The ni nicest guy. He really did. He was the nicest guy. Totally. And uh, there were so many places to start with you, but I I I'd love to go back to your tenure working as a field producer for the early show. Okay. With CBS, give or take 20 years ago. Uh, that's real on the ground, hardcore experience for a young person sort of in the early, early part of their career. And I would think, Stephanie, sometimes things go well and sometimes things don't. Can we talk about some of the reflections of that time you spent at CBS? Yeah, yeah it was it was a, it was a great time. And so first, thank you so much for for having me. Uh, good friends is such an is such an understatement. Um, it's just been such a pleasure. Uh, getting to know you over these years and I'm really excited just to to do this. Um yeah, you know, so when I first I had graduated school and you know, like most college graduates, I was really hungry but had no idea what I wanted to do. And I had this unique opportunity where I was offered uh the ability to go out um and be a field producer for what was then the CBS early show. Um, where I would work with local convention and visitors bureaus to really get to highlight sort of the best of the best of the cities as a way to promote the early show in their different um, in their in the different cities that they that they aired. So I did that on the weekends. And during the week, I was actually an account manager uh, in sales, uh, ad sales for the local CBS affiliate uh, in Memphis. So I actually did double duty for about a year or 18 months or so, um, but I loved it. And you're completely right. I mean, it really talk about throwing you into the deep end right out of school because, um, you know, I was sort of sent uh, on my way and, you know, would send back the work um, for the, you know, the marketing and ad sales teams to to edit and to work with. And I would get comments along the way and just basically give it another assignment, you know, the next weekend. But I absolutely I loved I loved doing it. It was really fun. So I went to Emory and my major was political science and sociology, which I hold in high regard and sociology in particular, you know, at 30,000 feet sort of teaches you how to think. Yeah. You had a more linear major at University of Tennessee in public relations. Yeah. I've always wondered how useful 
was that what you learned in school in your career are there things that you draw upon did it help you or was it kind of a bs major you know it so i when i went to school i knew i wanted to be in communications i went actually with the intention of being in broadcast journalism um, and started to, I took a few classes in broadcast journalism and learned very quickly that that was actually, despite, you know, I ended up doing a little bit of it early on with the early show, that was actually not where my passion was. And I, so I spent a little bit of time in each of the areas of marketing, of advertising, of PR and journalism. And I graduated, yes, with a degree in, in public relations and a focus on journalism. And I took a little bit from each of those classes that actually still today I use, um, you know, I think from the the two things I actually took the most of that I actually still use day to day. One was um, I had a journalism professor who was fantastic um, and really focused a lot on, of course, the writing and the detail around that and opening my eyes to the importance of, of absorbing news every single day. And I'm a curious human by nature. That's just how I'm programmed. Um, but really really cemented the importance of the role that that news could play and that journalists can play. Um, and I I took that with me and I still sort of think about that and, and how I absorb news is a big piece of that and how I oversee our marketing and sort of being curious, I think is is actually an output of that. And then the other class that actually I loved was uh, there were a few classes that I took as part of the advertising major with psychology. Um, I started my career early in sales and the psychology of the sales process, I always found really fascinating, but that was ultimately what got me into marketing is because with sales, it's sort of the psychology one-to-one of somebody, you know, what's the move they're going to make? How do you negotiate with them? How do you convince them to buy the product that you're selling? But with marketing, being able to really think about the psychology at a larger scale at mass was, was really interesting to me and still to this day is is really a fascinating part of marketing and one of the things I love so much about it. So bits bits and pieces for sure I, I've taken with me throughout my career. Oh, it's great to hear it and that you still reflect on those couple classes and some of those things all these years later. Yeah, I mean, I had a great journalism teacher in ninth grade and I still remember Mr. Granger, you know, yeah, to, today. Teacher, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So you roll along at CBS, Going back to those field producer uh, days and that part of your work there, were there any particular stories that you did? That's really great work when you're out there in the field, you know, in that role. And and were there any particular stories that you covered that you remember fondly? It was so. What I did was it was less stories and more promotion. So we would go and we would sort of work with the aquarium or the local museums or whatever it might be to kind of highlight the best of the best of the different cities that um, the early show was in. The lesson that I took from that role, though, I was very young. I was you know 22 years old, and I was working predominantly with very mature senior people um, who were, you know, because I would I would get a film crew basically in whatever city that I was in. They were typically stringers. They weren't always associated with CBS. Um, and I would be working with with the folks at the Convention and Visitors Bureau. So we're talking in some cases, some of those people were 20 years older than me, had a lot more seniority and experience. And yet I was leading um, the 
the experience and what we were doing and the agenda and, and where we were going to go and what cups I liked and what cups I didn't. And it was, it was a crash course in leadership. And it, what that taught me really, really early on that has always stayed with me and that I try and instill in other people is it does not matter how old you are, what your role is, that you could lead people who are, who have age on you, who have seniority on you, who have experience on you, and you can still lead them. And that was, that was the, the most important lesson that I learned out of that experience and probably one of the most important lessons that I've learned throughout my career. That's a great story. Let's, let's stay with that uh, notion for a moment. ICE and the NYSC is a female led business. And we just had somebody, you know, Julia Borston uh, on great minds and Julia wrote a great book. I know NYC and CNBC have a particularly close relationship. Julia just wrote, we just, a, we just actually um, did an event with Julia last week around the book. So uh, the book, what women, when women lead fantastic book. And uh, I uh, love the conversation with Julia because, uh, you know, it's, it's obvious, but, but not obvious women-led businesses are simply more successful. And uh, I would love to ref your reflections on that notion and what it's like being part of, and in what is still a male-dominated business culture, you're leading along with Lynn and your management team, a female-led organization. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think we're really proud of the female leadership that we have across the organization, and that's across ICE. I mean, Lynn Martin, um, is the second female president, Stacey Cunningham, before her. Uh, we have a lot of senior women in positions across the organization. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're still um, a heavily male-dominated industry that we're in. Um, you know, I think that from a, a female perspective, and these are this is certainly my perspective on lessons that I've learned, I think that there's a really interesting perspective that a woman can bring uh, to, to leading a team and leading a business. Um, I think that there's certain uh, elements of emotion um, of which sometimes gets a bad rep, don't be emotional or whatever. But I think that there can sometimes be a warmth and a kindness uh, that can come that comes naturally to a lot of women. And I think the balance is often, you know, and I and I talk to a lot of you know younger women about this, that you can be warm and kind. And I philosophically believe that you should be warm and kind and also very direct um, and candid and clear on your instruction and um, and your expectations with people. I think that that's a really um, important balance to any leader. And I think it, it doesn't really matter if it's if it's male or or female. Um, but I do think that, you know, I think every individual brings unique qualities, but I think that there's something really interesting that we're starting to see around women-led businesses um, and the the different types of strengths that they can bring and how that uh, how those can work really well in balancing sometimes male-dominated cultures. Yeah, it's, it's a really rich subject. And we're super proud to be launching Advertising Week in Africa in February. And similarly to stories and data around businesses that are female-led being more successful, more profitable, the same is also true of businesses that have diverse leadership measured by race. And, and I think we sort of keep learning the same lessons over and over again. I'm not sure everyone is learning them, but the data and the facts are pretty crystal clear here. Yeah. Well, look, I think, I, I think that what, what it comes down to is look, diversity is critically important and diversity in, in all different, you know, in all different ways. Um, and I think not only is diversity important, but then the, the authenticity around being 
true to yourself and bringing yourself to work or bringing yourself to all elements of your life is really important. And I'll, I'll give you a story. So, you know, many years ago, um, I was leading a team and I sort of had this philosophy that I, I, I didn't hug people at work. And I, as you know, I'm a hugger, like I am a warm person. I like to hug my, my friends. Um, but at work, I would never hug people. And I went to a personal experience that just kind of put life into perspective, as you know, um, put life into perspective for me. And I thought, you know, what, why am I not hugging people? Right. Like now, granted, this was before 2020, when we started to really think about kind of the implications of some of those things, but it was, it was just one of those things that really opened my eyes to the importance of showing up and being yourself and what that means. Um, and again, for me, that means leading with warmth and kindness and also being really direct and candid. But I think every leader brings something really authentic to the table. And I think that that, that diversity with the authenticity, that combination, that's the sweet spot. Um, and I think that's where you really start to see teams and companies and industries thrive. Uh, so well said. And it sounds like that early experience that you had having to lead teams where people are 10, 20 or more years older than you sort of cast into a leadership role that really benefited you in the long term. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. I think, look, you know, it's hard to know where I would be now, you know, without that, but I think the, there were, there were several lessons along the way um, that I was able to put that in practice. And, and so uh, fairly early on, I would I'd probably been working maybe six years um, at a company and we had done um, layoffs, right? Which is just, you know, sometimes unfortunately part of the, the process. Um, and so there were a number of people who ended up leaving the company that I was working for. And it was the first time I had ever experienced that. I was probably 25 or 26 years old. Um, so probably wasn't even working for six years at that point. Um, but it was the first time I really ever experienced that. And, and you know, that's that's jarring the first time you go through that. And I sent an email out to the team that I worked with in Chicago around, look, this is really hard. Um, and I included everybody in the office. This is really hard. And this is, um, you know, we really care about these people, but we have an opportunity, those that are left, we have an opportunity to really stand up and to push this forward um, and to play leadership roles. And I was probably, if not the youngest person in that office, certainly one of the youngest, more junior people in that office. And I remember my boss at the time saying to me, how impressive it was that I had sent that uh, to, you know, an entire office of people. Um, and I often think back to that moment. I, I didn't hesitate to think like that was a very natural thing that I felt we have an opportunity to stand up and really take this business forward. Right. It sucks what happened, but um, out of some of these hard times comes opportunity. And that perspective um, has always stayed with me. And I think that that sort of learnings around leadership um, I've, I've displayed at several points throughout my, throughout my career, but particularly when I was younger, where it was sort of less expected. Well, and I think, you know, those moments, we remember them forever and, you know, they show true colors and you showed your true colors. It sounds like pretty early on. So let's talk about Chicago, a place that you spent a lot of time in. I know you, were that I love. I had a yeah. run at PR Newswire and then the start of your tenure at Thomson Reuters, another great company. Uh, talk about that city. There's a grittiness to it. I, I, I love Chicago. I don't get there often enough, uh, but what a great town. Oh, I love Chicago. Um, I absolutely love Chicago. I think it's one of the best cities, best U.S. cities, one of the best U.S. cities. 
And, you know, I moved there on, I took a flyer. I was working for a company. I was actually working for a company in Atlanta um, while I was still doing the early show on the weekends. And um, the company in Atlanta said, look, you know, we think we're going to promote you to this role, you know, to a new role. Um, I was in sales at the time. We're going to promote you to this role, but you got to go to Chicago for some training. And I said, all right. You know, I'd never really been to Chicago. I said, sure. I remember driving into the city from the airport and just thinking, this is the most beautiful city that I've ever been in. I just, I was just really taken by the skyline. It was, you know, it was, it was later and, and the, the, just the sparkle of the buildings just, just, just stood out to me. I was there for three weeks and I go back to Atlanta and I was talking to a friend of mine and I said, oh, I just really miss Chicago. Um, and the friend of mine said, you know, why don't you live there? And I said, I don't, you know, I live in Atlanta. I don't know if I'm going to live in Chicago. Within 24 hours, the company came back to me and said, would you be interested in moving to Chicago? And I, without hesitation, I said, absolutely. I packed my bags and I had moved within about five days. And I lived there for many years and really at such a pivotal moment in my life. I, I lived there from my mid twenties into my early thirties. And I loved, I loved it. I find that it's, uh, there's so much culture and community um, in Chicago that I really fell in love with. Um, and just, it was, it was just at a moment in my life where it, it's a city that's really manageable and, and allowed me to be very independent and thrive early on in my career, early on, uh, with my social life. And it just, it holds a really special place in my heart. I just absolutely adore that city. Yeah, I, I do too. And you know, it doesn't get talked about a lot. People talk about New York and LA and, and I think Chicago has got a lot of the things that make New York great and, and a lot of things that are unique in Lake Michigan, which is more like an ocean. It's so beautiful. That's, I, I completely agree. And it, it is, it's really beautiful. I always say, look, if the weather was better in Chicago, most <laughs> everybody would want to live there. Yeah, no. It needs its knocks so that not everybody moves there. Oh my God. In 94, I went, I was lucky and went to the Lillehammer Olympics in Norway and when we were on, oh, I the, love Norway. We were on the train, I remember this vividly, from Oslo to Lillehammer, and you can see on the map where the North Pole is. That's how far north you are. Chicago is much colder than that. Yeah, yeah. Much colder. Yeah. Okay, it's, all right. It, and, it's remarkable, but I I, uh, I know that train ride, and I am a big fan of Norway. It's yeah. such a beautiful, oh, God, such a beautiful that, that, that was a wonderful, wonderful time of life to be get to go to an Olympics back then. So, all right, back to you, Stephanie. This is, this is your show, not mine. So you rise up the ladder at Thomson Reuters, and you're in account management, you're in commercial strategy, you're leading the brand and PR and comms, and you're barely 30 years old. <laughs> that's that that's a lot of responsibility at a pretty big bellwether global brand. Yeah. Yeah. It it was. You know, I I never I didn't really think about it that way. I I have always been very well supported um which I'm thankful for. I I've, I've had a very big support system around me throughout my career and um and mentors and people that I um have had the pleasure of of working with and for that have been very supportive and so you know, my career is an interesting one and I, and I get a lot of comments around how, how linear it has been. You know, I really have just sort of worked my way uh, through these different roles. And it was, it, you know, I, I think it's one of those where I've, I've been offered opportunities to stretch myself. And I philosophically believe that uh, the worst thing that can happen is that I don't do a great job 
And if I don't love it and I'm not good at it or whatever it might be, I will go and find something else to do that will make me happy. Um, and I think that lack of fear or failure has allowed me to stretch myself um, in ways that has, you know, allowed me to put myself out there and take on bigger roles. Um, because I, I do, I am sort of programmed to think what's the worst that could happen, right? I'm, I'm a natural optimist in that way. And I, and I think the other thing is I, I tend to believe in, in myself. Yeah. Well, uh, listen, you got, you got to start off that you got to be your own cheering section to begin with. Isn't that right? right? Yeah, it's true. Absolutely true. So you rode the wave of sort of, uh, uh, the halcyon days, if you will, of companies like Thomson Reuters and, and then later on at Dow Jones, which I think navigated uh, the whole digital evolution a lot better. Uh, but you saw it the way the world was to the way the world is now, and a lot of casualties along the way. Uh, talk about what the landscape was in the news business when you started at Thomson Reuters or even earlier at PR Newswire, you know, peripherally back about 2005 and where it grew to by the time you left that part of your career in about 2017. Yeah. So, you know, when I, when I started, you know, there was email and BlackBerry and that's how we, that's how we operated. Although at CBS, there was, there was email, no BlackBerry. And I remember I had to learn how to use a fax machine. Um, which was even baffling to me having just come out of college and, and that there were still fax machines then. Um, but, you know, I think the, the most interesting, the most interesting evolution at that stage was just how people communicate and the shift of being able to go home and put your work away, you know, leave your work at the office and you go home or you go out and you meet, you know, colleagues or friends um, to all of a sudden being available all the time. And I think the pendulum had shifted so far where I remember I was in sales early on um, when that shift started to happen, when everybody had Blackberries. And I, I distinctly remember being at brunch um, with friends on a Sunday and a client emailing me on the black, on my, and I was, you know, looking at my Blackberry and I wasn't sure what to do, right? Are you supposed to respond? It's a Sunday. Do you not respond? And then over the years, you started to see like actually people would respond at all hours of the day and night and it didn't matter and it never stopped. And now looking back, actually, I think that that, sh that is shifting the other way, particularly with COVID, where now people are, are, I think, you know, generally people are trying, and certainly myself, trying to create more boundaries around sort of, you know, those hours and your personal time, et cetera. But I think the early days, it was definitely around communication and and how you would how you would engage with colleagues and clients I think a little bit later than that, that the big shift was around social. And so that was really interesting as not only an employee, but an employee in marketing and communications. And that was that was what was so fascinating when I was at Thomson Reuters in the um, brand strategy role. The biggest focus we have was how do we now take advantage of social? What do we do with it? You know, we were trying to figure out like, you know, how do we how do we use Twitter? Do you use Twitter to promote the news? Do you use Twitter to promote? us and our products. And we sat, you know, around, there were so many conversations around how, how do we use it and what's the shift and how do we make that transition? Um, and I, honestly, a really fortunate place, I think, as a marketer to be, to get to sort of experience the the pre, during, and, and you know, what I would say sort of current uh, around both of those. So do you think that we are better off the way things are now with the immediacy of everything? You know, you mentioned the fax machine, and then I go back even further and remember when you would get the mail 
and the mail <laughs> right, was what right. the mail was important. Because right? now a novelty. If I get right. something in the mail, I think, oh, how nice. <laughs> right. And and if it's something important in the mail, it's a reasonable chance you're going to miss it. It's mostly it's mostly catalogs, uh, you know, uh, or solicitations, and once in a while a bill, and once in a blue moon a check, uh, but for the most part, uh, irrelevant day to day. Do you think we're better off now, or were we better off then, or is it is it a, is it is that a bad question? It might be a bad question I just asked. <laughs> I don't know if it's a bad question. I think it's I think it depends on the day. Um, I think what has been enormously helpful has been COVID, ironically enough. COVID, I think, really shifted people's perspective and expectations, you know, society as a whole. All of a sudden, we all want more flexibility or we all want more bound, you know, we want to be better around boundaries or we all you know, I mean, I'm generalizing, of course, but like how we spend our time, who we spend our time with. And certainly for, for me, I've thought a lot about that. So, you know, within COVID, I also had a baby. So I have a three-year-old now. And so it's been very much around who do I want to spend my time with? Life is precious. How do we create boundaries or say yes to the things that I want to say? And in order to do that, I have to say no to things that I don't necessarily want to do. So I think it's it's less to me around, is it better or worse? I think what has been shape-shifting has been the role that COVID has played in certainly shifting my perspective around um, how I work, when I work, how I spend my time, who I spend my time with. And to me, that's been, that's been game-changing, really. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. Uh, and, and the revelation... Uh, that we've had that you're not always available, you know, and that you're better as a person, better as a leader, uh, better as a family, you know, member of your family by having those boundaries. I, I completely agree. And, you know, the first taste that I had of that was when I was on maternity leave, this was, this was in 2019. I, really wasn't available. I, I was very intentional about wanting to spend time with my son and my family and I had have a very strong leadership team. And there were, you know, there were a couple projects that I really wanted to stay involved in because I get a lot, I got a lot of juice off of it and I found it energizing. But for the most part, um I my management team, they ran the show, they did their thing. Um, and I think we were all better for it. I think, you know, COVID aside, that that was a really good lesson for me that I don't always have to be there. And I think it's sort of like the age old thing of if you don't check your vacation, you know, you don't check your email when you're on vacation and all of a sudden you'll see a cycle of emails going through and then you see that, oh, they sorted it out because they realize that you're on vacation for another few days. Right. You know, so it's, it really is amazing if you just sort of step back um, and let your team's or your family sort of do their thing that people tend to thrive with a little bit of space. And, and I certainly, you know, consider that true for myself. Yeah. And I think none of us are truly indispensable. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. As much as we, I, we I think, think as much as we think otherwise, indispensable for, I'd like to think that my son will think that I'm indispensable, but outside of that, I think that there's very few roles that a human can play that uh, you wouldn't be indispensable. Yeah, the, tr the trains tend to keep moving. So let's talk about uh, for a little bit about where we met, which was during your tenure at Dow Jones. Yeah, yeah. Oh, great, that was, great. We had such a good time, didn't we? We sure did. You sure yeah. did. But, but you had a, a pretty big role there, rising up to a VP. That's an awfully big global company. Yeah, yeah. So I was at Dow Jones for about five, almost six years. I started in ad sales. 
um, which was a really comfortable place for me having, you know, having been at, at, at CBS prior and certainly being at, at Thomson Reuters. So really comfortable in news and um, and data. So I started out in ad sales um, and was charged with how do we um, how do we really elevate the what started as the WSJ brand um, around advertising sales, which is how we met um, and and worked on some really fun projects. And then uh, and then following the role in in ad sales, I I took on a role across all of Dow Jones doing something similar, so overseeing corporate marketing. Um, and really responsible for the Dow Jones brand and the Dow Jones um, uh, corporate data uh, division of the organization. And that company contrasted with many other players in the space, sort of figured out early on how to make money in the digital world. A lot of folks in the space, the newspaper space in, in particular, really flailed and failed in that arena. What was it about Dow Jones and that you know, the, the company and all the people around you in the journal that you guys sort of figured that out better than a lot of other people. Yeah. So we had, a, we had a few, there were a few iterations, some that predated me and certainly some when I was there where we, we had strong leadership and vision and guts to make some tough decisions. You know, I think the first that was, this predated me, but that certainly had a lot of um, people talking was that we were one of the first to create a paywall. Um, and the philosophy was, you know, quality journalism should be paid for. And I wholeheartedly believe that. And I think that people um, scoff less now about paying for quality journalism. But at the time, it was really revolutionary that what, what the journal had done. And then over time, you know, some of the changes that we made that were credited to um, the, the CMO of the journal at the time, Susie Watford, Katie Vanek-Smith, who was the president of um, of Dow Jones came in and really were bold in thinking about how do we um, commercialize the Wall Street Journal. Um, and so putting in things like, you know, loyalty programs and conference series and um, really focusing on expanding and scaling the, the quality of the content. And I think that a lot of the things that, that we did as a company at the time um, were sort of first to market um, and are now sort of standard practice across um, across the industry. But I think that those were some of the bigger things that we did uh, in terms of commercializing it. Yeah, super successful. And I remember watching the New York Times in particular flail for years. Do we charge? Do we not charge? And to their credit under Meredith, I think they've really done wonderfully in following the path the Guardian set forward initially around subscription revenue. Along comes an opportunity and you make a move to ICE and to what is one of the great institutions in all of America, the New York Stock Exchange. Tell me how you got there. So I uh, I got a call uh, that they were looking for um, a marketer to oversee their data business. So ICE has been around about 22 years. We're incredibly acquisitive. We've made almost 50 acquisitions in about that time. And at the time, this was early 2017, they had made some large acquisitions. I think it was in 20, 2015, 2016, large acquisitions to really expand into data. And prior to that, we had really been focused on futures exchanges and the New York Stock Exchange. And the data business is, is a different beast in terms of how you market it. So they had reached out to me to see if I would have any interest um, at the time, I met with um, Lynn Martin and, and Kelly Loeffler and some others and really was impressed with the leadership. 
um, and really enjoyed a lot of the conversations. And I had said, look, I like where this is going. I do not have financial services experience. That is not what I would be bringing to the table. I would be bringing marketing chops. Um, and, you know, I've been here about five and a half years. I, I absolutely love it. I love the company. I love the culture. Um, I love the work and my team. And I actually really, really like financial services, which was a which was a huge surprise for me. I was not expecting to um, be so taken by it, but I think it's such an interesting role that ICE plays in the global financial marketplace, um, really central to, um, I mean, really central to the global financial marketplace. And I think that that's a really special place to be. And I think as a marketer, a really special opportunity in the role that we play. You also have the joy of walking into one of the great buildings in America. And I was very lucky in my career in the 30s, when I was in my 30s, not the 1930s, not that old, but in when I was in my 30s, I had an office at Radio City Music Hall. And I absolutely loved walking into that building and found it to be an incredibly inspirational place to be. I would imagine walking into the New York Stock Exchange building is quite similar. It was, it, it is. And actually, even just you saying that just gives me the chills. I remember, so when I went in the first time to the building, I had never been in it before my interview. Um, I walked into the building for my interview um, and was immediately taken with it. Like just the history of it and the role that it plays. It just, it's hard not to get swept up in that. And I remember walking out of the building after that interview and just, I went to the corner, I'll never forget. I went to the corner, there's a TD uh, bank at the corner and I just stood there kind of taking it in at the experience of having not only gone into the building, but gone, going into this building for this role that I was that I was quite interested in. Uh, but look, I was there this morning and I happened to be in our Midtown office this afternoon, but I was there this morning um, with a client and we were down on the floor for the bell ringing and it just, it takes your breath away every single time. You know, every time I'm in that building, it takes my breath away in terms of not just the role that it plays in the marketplace, but just the history of it. I mean, you feel it everywhere. Um, and, I, and I'm and i so incredibly proud to be a part of uh, the larger ICE organization, but to play such a small role in the history of the New York Stock Exchange is something I'm, in, I'm incredibly grateful for. And Stephanie, the work that you and your team are doing to contemporize this iconic, uh, I'll use this word, old brand is incredible. Can we talk about some of the things that you've been doing in that brand building arena, which uh, are really progressive from a pure marketing vantage point? Yeah, well, th thank you for, for, for saying that. Yeah, you know, when I, when I joined um, a few years ago, the the focus had really been on um you know building out the marketing team and what does it look like and you know and sort of having that function and then in 2020 we had made a very large our largest acquisition at, at the time and you know one of the things that we started talking about is that we have two challenges you know broadly speaking two brand challenges when you think about ice you know, ICE isn't isn't particularly well known outside of, you know, if you're if you're a futures trader, you're going to know who ICE is. But broadly speaking, most people don't necessarily know who we are. And as our business continues to expand and we were reaching more clients or prospective clients, the need for that brand awareness became more and more important. So that was sort of one challenge that we had. The other challenge, which is kind of juxtaposed to that, is we have the NYSC, which is this historic institution that actually has no issues. There's no brand awareness, right? Everybody knows what the, the New York Stock Exchange is, 
but everybody has preconceived notions of what it represents and what it means. Good, bad, ugly, indifferent, and, you know, it's, but it's sort of ingrained in, in, you know, in, as in the human psyche um, because of the role that it plays. And so the, the opportunities that we've had have been around, how do you, for the NYSE specifically, how do we start to shift that perception or help shape that, per, that perception a lot earlier? And so we, over the course of the last 18 months, we we did our first global uh, campaign with our first uh, spot using influencers um, and notable people like Zach Brown of McLaren and Egypt Sherrod and Rose Hahn uh, and some others. Um, and work to tie together ICE, which is this really progressive fintech company that's been around 22 years, and NYSC. And so specifically with NYSC, we have done everything from, you know, hosting a fashion show on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. We've rebranded and redesigned the New York Stock Exchange to make it a lot more modern. We have completely sort of rethought our go-to-market strategy and, and how we tell our story. Um, and so a lot of that has, um, has been at the... Um, really has been the focus for the entire marketing team around how do we bring those two parts of the business together to better both parts and move them forward um, and let them both benefit both ICE and NYSC from the, the best of both worlds. Well, and what you've done with an institution that has goes back centuries uh, to bring it into the contemporary era. Uh, and, and And you have that asset of the building and the opening and closing of the exchange every day, which is business theater is tremendous. And through through your kindness and some of your colleagues, uh, we were able to uh, open the exchange as part of advertising week this year. Our parent company, Emerald, is a proud NYSE publicly traded company. And uh, there is an absolute magic to that, which is completely unique. It's, it's so true. And I mean, and look, I think that for us, once you've been in that building, you sort of dream about being in that building and being on that podium. I've had the good fortune of being able to, I've been on that podium once uh, to ring the bell when we rolled out a lot of our brand work. Um, and it is such a special experience, both being on the podium and even on the floor. Um, but I think you're right. You know, part of what we're trying to do is open up this institution to people that might not be as familiar with it. You know, we had Serena Williams ring the bell uh, over uh, over the summer. We have athletes come, you know, and ring the bell. We have um, cultural artists ring the bell. And that's been, a, been another uh, way that we've started to say, how do we just open up the NYSC? Because the, the opportunity that we have is this building, right? The building is so incredibly special, but by the nature of it being a building, it's sort of closed off, right? Or it has the perception of being closed off. And so how do you preserve all the magic that happens in that building, but give people a little bit of a peek into what goes on and make it a little bit more accessible for people to see and get to experience. And so we've used technology to do that. We've used different partners uh, in terms of who we who rings the bell. We uh, we expanded our deal uh, in the last um, year with CNBC that I was really excited about, including bringing mad money onto the floor of the exchange. Um, so there's been a lot of different things that we've been looking at to reach younger and broader audiences, as well as continuing to solidify our existing audiences. And, and there's a lot of heart to what you're doing. Also, we were lucky enough to be involved 
uh, in two openings recently, the one I mentioned, and then very kindly was invited by our friends and partners at the Nelson Mandela Foundation. And your vice chair, John Tuttle, I know is very committed to the Mandela Foundation. I think we're working on a dinner concurrent with Advertising Week uh, next year in 2023. But there's an awful lot of heart in what you're doing also. I, I think that's true. And I think that's one of the really special things about the role that the New York Stock Exchange plays is one, giving a platform to organizations that should have a platform, right? Like to your point, you know, that bell rings, you know, morning and afternoon, five days a week for the most part. And so how do we give that platform, you know, or give give people and organizations access to that platform and the visibility to also be able to highlight some of the great work that they're doing. And so, you know, during COVID, we did that all the time, you know, getting to highlight you know, first responders, you know, teachers, whatever it might be. And I think that that's been something that also came out of COVID. It's something that we've always done, um, but being really intentional about, again, how do you sort of just create, um, you know, use this platform for the good that it, that it could provide. And I think that that's something that's really special to be a part of. A hundred percent. So you touched on it a little bit when we were talking about, you know, so the evolution of technology and and drawing boundaries, but you're now operating differently, not only as the CMO of ICE and the NYSC, but also as a mom and creating that balance. And I think similarly, we both like to go to work, we like to go to the office, but you've got a lot to balance now. Talk about how you've had to adapt to manage and keep that balance. It's a little bit like a seesaw, I suppose. It, it is a seesaw and it's it's different day to day, I think, you know, and, and it's been a journey because again, I, I've been learning how to be a mom during COVID, you know, so it's, it's sort of been this evolution of, you know, what does normal look like and how do I start to get into that rhythm? And I, you know, for me, what became really clear is I, I love to work. I get a lot of energy about, you know, going to work. I love being around my team and people. Um, and so, you know, working from home wasn't going to be the best way to get the best out of me. So I have, all, I've been going back to the office and had been since, you know, 2020, but what I have started to do is when I'm home with my son, I'm home with my son and I'm present with him. So, you know, if I'm doing, you know, the nighttime routine or bath time from the time I come home and I spend with him to the time that he goes to sleep, I don't look at my phone. I don't, you know, sort of, you know, mess around with other things. I just, you know, I spend that quality time with him. And that was advice that a friend of mine had given is it's, it's less about the quantity and it's much more about the quality and the time that they that they spend with you. And so just really trying to be present has been number one. Number two is I, you know, I have a really great support system around me in terms of help, uh, you know, my husband and we have an amazing nanny and so really fortunate to to be able to do that. But I think, you know, don't underestimate the village, I think is really important and important to talk about. And that comes in various shapes and sizes for people. And I think the third thing is it's really opened up, I think, the way that I talk about my child, especially during COVID. I mean, he was young and there were times that I would just have him on my hip because he wouldn't stop crying. And we were on, you know, our team call. Uh, you know, he was he, he was really into fans when he was younger. And there was one meeting where literally everybody that had a fan on the Zoom screen had to point their, their cameras to the fan because it was the only thing that would calm my son down was he wanted to see the fans. Um, but I think being really open and understanding to the fact that we all just have, you know, personal obligations and that you can get your work done and do your thing. And also, like, if you want to go to your kid's play or your kid's homesick or whatever it might be, it's OK to go and be present with that. Right. You're not. And I think that that's really important. And I try very hard to lead by example on that. Great stuff. Great. And so well told. 
So let's talk about the year ahead, 2023. If we're having this conversation again in a year, what are we talking about that was the big hit for ICE in the NYSE in 2023? Yeah. So, well, you'll have to stay tuned for that until the spring, but what you'll start to see from us, we had a lot of great success around using third parties, influencers and others to help us tell our story. So we're going to we're going to be building on that um, as we go into into next year. We're going to continue to make some brave moves around, particularly around the New York Stock Exchange, around how we um, how we sort of invite people in. And that could be virtually or, or in person, but how we invite people into that NYSE experience. You're going to see a lot more around that. So you know, I think I think we're looking to make bold moves. We're not um, we're not shying away from making mistakes, right? We know we're going to make mistakes along the way, but you're going to start to see, you know, probably recognizable faces. Uh, we're testing out a bunch of new platforms um, on in terms of where we're looking to show up uh, to reach uh, clients, and we're looking at some interesting um, places to activate the brand that we haven't really done before. Um, it's a little early to sort of to throw out any um, any of those names, but that's a, that's a big focus too around how we want to activate the brand. Great stuff. Well, this has been an absolute joy to catch up with you. Uh, and uh, we did not talk about pound cake, which I thought might come we, up. I know. Well, I now know. I guess that's a teaser for the next one. Uh, exactly. We'll, we'll have to save that for the uh, uh, episode two. But right. thanks so much for doing this. An absolute joy. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. Not every company can produce original video ads in half the time and at a fraction of the cost of traditional commercials, but not every company is QuickFrame by Mountain. Their solution hacks the video production process, funneling all the benefits of a massive creator marketplace into a hand-selected network of video creators who work alongside customer success teams to bring your brand's vision to life. Producing high-performing video ads at scale isn't expensive and time-consuming anymore, or at least it isn't with QuickFrame. Visit quickframe.com to learn more.